The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Anti-Modernist Reader on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode, I'm delighted to be joined once again by His Lordship, Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us again. Nice to be here. This episode is a members-only episode and is not available for individual purchase and download. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit www.truerestoration.org forward slash radio and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. In this show, we will cover part three of this document, which focuses on the Vatican II notion of communion. In future shows, we will critique the position and discuss the branch theory. My Lord, we finished the previous show with the notion that communion is very much a two-way street. It has to be recognized by each party on either side to mean anything at all. Communion, we discussed, is a necessary effect of incorporation in the faith, government, and worship of the church. One cannot be incorporated in the mystical body of Christ without being in communion. This show, we're going to talk about the Vatican II notion of communion, and that differs markedly. Now, my lord, the first question is, what is the really main key difference, the the essential difference between the traditional notion and the Vatican II notion of communion? The essential difference is that Vatican II wants to distinguish the Church of Christ from the institutional Roman Catholic Church. In the traditional teaching of the Church, those two things are absolutely identical. In Vatican II, they are not identical. And so communion is therefore replaced as uh, the institutional church or put in the place of the institutional church. They say the church is a communion and therefore bypass the institutions of the church, namely the Catholic hierarchy. So if you have some of the elements of Christianity in your church, you have a partial communion with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, If you have everything, then you're in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So, and by the way, that business of partial and full communion was never used in the Catholic Church. It was concocted by Protestants 
particularly Kuhlmann, who was a friend of Ratzinger, because Protestants are always looking for communion one with another. Protestants have for decades and, and centuries even been trying to put themselves together, and of course they can't. It, it's like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, <laughs> they, they cannot put themselves back together because of their doctrine of free examination of the scriptures, that, that ultimately uh, you have as many popes as you have Protestants, and you have as many doctrines, or at least possible doctrines, as you have Protestants. So, uh, so they devise this thing that everyone is in partial communion one with another, uh, depending on how many things you have in common. And this nonsensical idea has, has been translated over into Catholic theology, so to speak, by the modernists in order to come up with an ecumenical model for the, the present age. See, if you say that if you are not subject to the Roman pontiff and, and to the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, you're out. You're not a church. You're, you're just a, a dead branch that has fallen off the vine and are of no use for anything. Well, you can't do ecumenism in that context. See, but on the other hand, if you say, well, the church is a communion and we're in partial communion with you because we have certain things in common. Well, that opens the door to some ecumenism. Uh, so that, that's the, the, the basis of all of Vatican II is ecumenism, to, to mix together religions, to do away with dogmas, uh, in order that religions can find a, a common basis one with another. And I was just commenting the other day, I was reading some church history, how many reconciliations there have been in the history of the church with schismatics and heretics. Many, many reconciliations. The church always bending over backwards to try to accommodate them into returning uh, to the Catholic Church. Whereas in the 50 years of Vatican II, there hasn't been a single reconciliation. Not, they can't even reconcile with the Society of St. Pius X. <laughs> they are incapable of it. <laughs> So, uh, at least at this point, but, you know, it's been 40-some years that the Society of St. Pius X has sought a reconciliation, and even in the, all of the atmosphere of ecumenism, they can't come up with one. So it, it's kind of amusing, because uh, and the, the way that, that reconciliations were done in the past was simply this. Look, you have to return, you have to submit to the, submit to the hierarchy, you have to make a profession of faith, you have to give up your heresies. And people were willing to do that because they understood the principle of religion, the basic principle of religion. And that is that, you know, it, it is based on dogma. And you can't, you can't mix false and true. If you're going to go back to the Catholic Church, you have to accept the dogmas of the Catholic Church and accept the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And that has always been the attitude of the Catholic Church. But since Vatican II, it's all changed. So that, that's the, the fundamental error of Vatican II. And so they have created something that we call Frankenchurch. Uh, yeah. That's uh, Father Chikata uh, amusing. <laughs> yeah. uh, because it imitates Frankenstein. If you remember, I don't think anyone's read the book, but I'm sure most people have seen the movie. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was made, he, I, I, 
I was made to read it in, in school, yeah. So I have, I have actually, I'm one of those few people that have actually read the book. I only saw the movie. So, okay. but the, the Dr. Frankenstein that gets these body parts and sews them together, and then you know, lifts the body up into a thunderstorm, and then the body comes down again, and it, it's living. Uh, that's something like what the Novus Ordo religion is, is and that is a, uh, or this Church of Christ, as they call it. It's a number of body parts, that is, heretical and schismatical religions sewn together uh, and made into some sort of living church, which is distinct from the Roman Catholic Church, or what they call just the Catholic Church. That is the church uh, considered with its hierarchy, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church considered with its hierarchy. So they make that distinction between those two things. And then they also make the distinction of partial and full communion, which, as I said, never existed previously in the Catholic Church. Of course, the funny thing about that story is the Frankenstein story is that in the book, and I'm sure it comes through in the film as well, Frankenstein's creature ends up hating both itself and its creator because it doesn't know what it is. It has no real, <laughs> it has no sense of its own individuality or identity. It's it's a it's a it's a hotspot of everything, and so it ends up hating itself because it has no idea of what it is. Yes, so, yes, I, I think that would uh, the analogy I think applies. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and talking of the SSPX, I haven't actually. I know we always, we always seem to end up talking about the SSPX in these shows, but and I haven't intended to. But you've just reminded me of something. Um, so the SSPX is in a position where it's willing to share clergy with the Novus Ordo. Um, it will take in Novus Ordo, uh, Novus Ordo priests, not, not really priests, not validly ordained, uh, won't conditionally ordain them. Um, Correct. And so unless they, they want it, unless they want it. So it's a sort of, it's a, it's a sort of a nice thing to do, but it's not essential. And so they, they've yeah, got it, even it, got, it's a, it depends on the, the conscience that... of the individual priest. If he feels that he needs it or something like that, they'll do it. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yes, so they've got, they've, got, they've got to the point where they can share clergy, but they still can't make any sort of form of reconciliation. And I know for a fact that one uh, somebody I know who will remain nameless, and the priest will remain nameless, uh, yeah. was, visited, was visited by an SSPX priest um, a couple of days ago because they're a set of a cantist. And the SSPX priest has just sort of found this out and uh, is uh, troubled by this and wanted to go and see them. So, yeah, they said, you can come and see me. <laughs> the person the, the person ended up being embarrassed because the person, and I'll, I won't even give away gender here, right. the person had to explain to this SSPX priest who's been ordained for probably 20 years what the hermeneutic of continuity is. Oh, my he goodness. Did, he did not know. And so, you, so you think, well, what are they doing? I mean, do they do they understand the problem here? I mean, if you've got to just start there, you know, what are you talking about? They, they felt like they were they were schooling a priest, which was really embarrassing for them. Yeah, we have come across that a great deal. Is that they, uh, they the the whole thing is based on loyalty to Archbishop Lefebvre. And there is not a lot of theology going on in their minds. They, they don't turn these ideas over in their minds and, and figure out why they're doing what they're doing. For them, Archbishop Lefebvre is essentially the prophet. And he told us how to 
handle the situation. That's all we need. And, and you know, yes, when they're challenged by by theological problems, they, in our experience, they have the same reaction that, uh, that they they're incapable of handling it. That's our experience as well. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the depth of theology was never emphasized in their seminaries, uh, you know, from what I understand, and, and also. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I- so getting so getting back to this document, um, at the top of page 104 in the Antimodernist Reader for people who are following at home, you make the point uh, that according to Vatican II, the mystical body of Christ, if you take their interpretation of communion, uh, I quote you, has been scandalously torn into many pieces over the centuries. Now, what do you mean by this, my lord? Well, it's not what I mean by this. It's what, uh, what yeah, 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 yeah. It's what they mean <laughs> yeah. by this. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, you have to understand that if you go back to 103, uh, we yeah. I quote Vatican II, that yeah. Church, holy and Catholic, which is the mystical body of Christ, is made up of the faithful who are organically united in the Holy Spirit through the same faith, same sacraments, the same government who, combining into various groups held together by a hierarchy, form separate churches or rites. Now, note that there is absolutely nothing in this definition which would exclude either the Orthodox or the Protestants. You see, they are, uh, they are held together by a hierarchy, and they form separate churches or rites. So they're seeing this mystical body as a collection of separate churches that are held together by a hierarchy. So that there's nothing there that excludes it. And uh, then it says, from her very beginnings, there arose in this one and only church of God, certain rifts, which the apostle strongly censures as damnable. That means St. Paul. But in subsequent centuries, more widespread disagreements appeared and quite large communities, and they capitalized communities, became yep. separated from full communion. Notice that full communion with the Catholic Church, oh, developments for which at times men of both sides were to blame. Right? So they, the, that means the translation through schism and heresy, people cut themselves off from the true church became schismatic groups and heretical groups which don't even deserve the name of church because there's only one church and that is the one founded by Christ upon St. Peter and so they don't even deserve the name of church uh, they, they simply are heretical schismatical groups and, uh, and uh, you know, of course uh, both sides were to blame that, that's false you are to blame if you fail to submit to the Catholic hierarchy, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, even if the even if the let's say the Pope or the Catholic hierarchy is in some way a little harsh, it is still your fault if you separate from them. And and you, you know there's no there's no saving it or there's there's no there's no way to say well you had a good reason to leave because we were being nasty to you, right? So. Then the next paragraph, uh, or the next important piece of this this uh, document, uh, 
says this, but the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them, that is, these separated churches and communities, as means of salvation which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. That is a heretical statement, uh, because only the Catholic Church is the means of salvation. Uh, only the, the spouse uh, uh, of the Holy Ghost is the means of salvation, meaning the Catholic Church. They are not means of salvation. The only thing that those separated churches and communities, or whatever you want to call them, those, those heretical sects and schismatical sects can do, is steal doctrines from the Catholic Church, which they have in most cases, where they learn them, and preach those doctrines to their sectaries, and in that case, they are able to at least instruct them in some of the truth of the faith, which unfortunately are mixed in with heresies. Mm -hmm. But a person who is in the state of sanctifying grace might be able to, uh, you know, a person who is in good conscience and doesn't know that he's erring, might be able to be instructed by their preaching. That is not a means of salvation. Means of salvation means that you have all of the means necessary to bring someone to heaven. They, they have all of the means necessary to bring someone to hell. Right? They are a means of damnation. I, I will grant them that. They are uh, <laughs> means of damnation. Uh, and it's only by accident that they have anything that might lead someone to the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like someone who has stolen your Rolls Royce. It's still a Rolls Royce sitting in the in the garage of the of the of the thief. Still a beautiful car, a very expensive car, and it's in the wrong hands. But nevertheless, it's still a beautiful car. <clears throat> so also the truth of the faith, and in the case of the Greek Orthodox and and other schismatics, the sacraments themselves have been stolen from the Catholic Church and are used by them, and because they are Catholic sacraments and because they are in possession of Catholic dogmas, they will have a certain effect when they're used that may lead somebody to the Catholic faith. But there's no salvation in those sects. There's no. just damned because they, they are cut off from the true faith and from the, from the Ark of Salvation, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And that is the traditional teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. But mm -hmm. as I said, the, the um, purpose of Vatican II is ecumenism. Uh, it is to uh, meld all religions together into a dogmaless, dogmaless humanity religion, uh, which we're seeing very clearly now with Bergoglio. And uh, uh, so you, you have to understand that the traditional ecclesiology, which means the theology concerning the Church itself, the traditional ecclesiology had to be done away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's one. There was one more question in the three uh, paragraphs that you have quoted, my lord. There are. Well, I had really four questions, and you've answered three of them um, specifically. But the fourth one was: Has the church, or can the church be? Has the church been wounded by the separation of heretics? Is the church wounded by that? No, the, the church remains one, even if there's a single 
person left. Uh, the church remains one, but uh, even though it might lose a great deal of people, which is, you know, in a way a wound. It, it, it's not an intrinsic wound. It, it'd be like if, if one of your children ran off and became an apostate. It's a wound to you, obviously. But it doesn't in any way alter your integrity or the integrity of the faith of the home. Mm-hmm. See, if most of your children are, are faithful and one runs off and, and repudiates the faith, sure, you know, you could say it's a wound in a broad sense, but it's not a wound in a strict sense because right. the, the faith of the church continues, the hierarchy of the church continues, it is still the spouse of Christ. Uh, it is not any essential wound to the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church doesn't limp, in other words, as a result of people leaving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's very clear, but, you know, that the church would lament their loss. Of course, yes, of course it does. Uh, but uh, there's no wound to the unity of the Catholic Church. But if you consider mm-hmm. the Catholic Church, or I should say the Church of Christ, to be this broad thing that encompasses uh, everybody that happens to be Christian or happens to be baptized, well, then, yes, it is a rift. See, then, then, then they have value as church, so to speak, as churches, and, and it is a rift, uh, mm-hmm. whereas in the Catholic theology, they have no value as churches. They're nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, and, you know, unless anybody would like to accuse those crazy set of accountists of scaremongering, um, we've got some quotations here from Vatican II itself and from the 1983 Code of Canon Law, specifically from Lumen Gentium and Unitatis Redintegratio. Now, I don't know whether you would like to go through all of these, my lord, or just some of the, some of the, the juicier ones, but uh, would you like to comment on these at all? Yes, I think probably we should see them. Uh, the, the big one is Lumen Gentium 8, where it says, This church, referring to the sole church of Christ, now remember that they distinguish that from the Catholic Church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Mm-hmm. So that means that the Church of Christ does not have a subsistence on its own. It doesn't have an organization in the present world, a society in the present world, but has to achieve a subsistence, that is, an organized existence in something else. It's very important Mm -hmm. because that means the Church of Christ and the organized Catholic Church are not the same thing. If one subsists in the other, you have two different entities there, and that that is a heresy. That's a heretical mm-hmm. statement, and that subsists in. By the way, if you look at the commentaries on Vatican II, was purposely chosen in order not to absolutely identify the Catholic Church with the Church of Christ. It was an ecumenical choice. Mm-hmm. Right, so that 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 is devastating. Pope Pius XII in, in uh, Mystici Corporis, his encyclical on the Church, said that the mystical body of Christ is the Catholic Church. He was very clear. Very, very clear. Mm-hmm. But here we have subsists in, which 
uh, uh, you know, you get various commentaries as to what it means. But what is clear is that you're di- dealing with two different things. Because if it mm-hmm. subsists in something else, then it, you're dealing with two different entities. It's a really and horrible, really horrible word in English anyway. It reminds me of my um, A-level geography classes where you learnt about subsistence farming in the third world, where people sort of scratch out a living, um, living hand to mouth. And, and that's <laughs> what... And that's what that's what it sounds like. It sounds like the Catholic Church sort of scratches out a living. So the Church of Christ scratches out a living in the Catholic Church, but it's not. It, no, it isn't. It just sounds horrible. <laughs> now this is a very specific philosophical and theological word. Yeah, I understand. That means it that the it means to exist on its own, as opposed to an accident which exists in something else, like color. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say to the seminarians, you cannot go to, well, we, we, I don't know what you say in England, but Lowe's or Home Depot and ask for a, a, you know, a lot of blue. Could I have a pound of blue, please, or something? <laughs> because it's an accident. It must, there must be something which is blue, like blue paint or blue, a blue wall or something. And so the subsistence in the theological and philosophical sense means the quality of existing on your own and not in something else. So Mm -hmm. if it subsists in the Catholic Church, it means that it doesn't exist on its own. The Church of Christ does not exist on its own, but must find something in which it can subsist, just as Mm -hmm. blue must find paint in which it can subsist. The... the, so that's a very, you know, from the theological point of view, that's a disaster mm. uh, and, and is heretical. Yeah. Um, so uh, the next is from Unitatis Redintegratio, which is the decree on ecumenism. Such division of Christian communions openly contradicts the will of Christ, scandalizes the world, and damages that most holy cause the preaching of the gospel to every creature. All right, that's false. The uh, the, uh, the the they those who leave the church have no value in the order of religion. It is not as if they. It's like fighting brothers or siblings, where you are still a member of the family and you're fighting. This is that's the, the idea that you get from this that this is wrong that the siblings are fighting. Those people who leave the the Catholic Church are outside of the church, and while the church would like to see them return, the the there is no scandal to the world that they have left. Uh, there is no contradiction of the will of Christ that they have left, because it is the will of Christ that they leave and they are out if they repudiate the authority of the church or if they embrace heresy that is the will of christ that they be out they are automatically out if they do those things and it doesn't damage in any case the preaching of the gospel to every creature not at all (laughs) we can still the catholic church conducted itself very nicely preaching the gospel all over the world while most of the protestants just stayed home in europe the the only ones that stirred were the Anglicans in the 19th century. They finally mm-hmm. pulled themselves together uh, and went out into the British Empire to a certain extent and, uh, and evangelized the, the locals. 
but the rest of them stayed home in Europe or, or the United States, as the case may be, but did not have the um, immense missionary effort that the church had, Catholic Church. Yeah, I'm sure it's See, very. So, bra- I'm sure the Anglicans are very brave to evangelize the locals behind a line of soldiers. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite easy. They didn't go into Canada and, and convert the Huron. No, there was uh, there was none of that. I mean, the the Anglican Church was established over in this country and then everywhere where England went. Uh, but as far as getting into say Africa and other places, they were Johnny Come Latelys. <laughs> I don't know if you have that term in England. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they, they uh, you know, they yes, and and naturally they followed the the. The British Empire, but so you could say that also. The, the Spanish priests went with colonists, yeah. and and the yeah. French with the French. But uh, so it was sort of normal. And yes, sometimes you do need the help of, of the army uh, <laughs> for fear of being put into a pot and eaten. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway. the yes, uh, Gentium eight. Nevertheless, many elements of sanctification are found outside of its, meaning the Catholic Church's, visible confines. Since these are gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, they are forces impelling towards Catholic unity. All right, so they, these are these elements of sanctification and of truth. Uh, the, these are essentially things stolen from the Catholic Church. They are not gifts uh, that these people have. They are contraband <laughs> that these people have, <laughs> and forces impelling towards Catholic unity. As I said, uh, the only way that that could be true is by giving to people who are invincibly ignorant and of goodwill some Catholic dogmas, which by uh, to which they can adhere by supernatural faith. That's that's the extent of uh, of that, but. Well, you know that is that is not a force impelling towards Catholic unity. That is simply a uh, a presentation of the gospel that might be useful to them. Uh, what is forcing them to Catholic unity, or, or or impelling them to Catholic unity, is the Holy Ghost, and it's imp- he is impelling them to abandon heresy and to abandon schism and go to the True Church. That's that's the the impelling force. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's, it's like quite you, different from what they're presenting. It's like you say, my lord, to use your, your analogy of an aircraft. You wouldn't get on an aircraft that had even ninety-nine percent of the elements of an aircraft. You'd want to have all <laughs> <Yes>. of them. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, yes. it's not it's not it's not impelling to get you to your destination. It's going to crash into the sea a long time before you get there. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> you know, you could just see an airline saying, "Well, we have elements of aircraft." <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Lumen Gentium 9. (laughs) Oh, yes. So all those who look in faith, who in faith look towards Jesus, the author of salvation and the principal unit of unity and peace, God has gathered together and established as the church that it may be for each and every one the visible sacrament of the saving unity. So what does that mean? Who, Who in faith, look towards Jesus, right? That for the Protestant, that means some sort of confidence in Christ. 
uh, the author of Salvation and Principle of Unity and Peace, well, this could apply to anybody, even the most uh, radical Protestant. And this God has, got to, has gathered together and established as the Church. There is no mention of the Catholic hierarchy here. There's no mention of submission to Catholic dogmas, Catholic moral teaching, Catholic law, the Roman pontiff. And traditionally, that has entered into all of the definitions of the church. And you can see that they are dividing the church, quote-unquote, from the Catholic church. Um, and, so, and then it's for each and every one a visible sacrament of the saving unity. Um, uh, so the, uh, then Lumen Gentium 14, the church knows that she is joined in many ways to the baptized who are honored by the name of Christian, but who do not, however, profess the Catholic faith in its entirety or have not preserved unity or communion under the successor of Peter. That means heretics and schismatics. These Christians are indeed in some real way joined to us in the Holy Spirit, for by his gifts and graces, his sanctifying power is also active in them, and he has strengthened some of them even to the shedding of their blood. All right, so this is false and even heretical. Uh, the, uh, the Holy Ghost is going to move people who are in heretical and schismatical sects toward the Catholic Church. Uh, the, uh, the, so his sanctifying power is going to be an, act, um, an actual grace, drawing them away from the schismatic, uh, schismatical and heretical sects, drawing them away from them and urging them toward the Catholic Church. Uh, and um, uh, that the, uh, these Christians, without any distinction, these Christians are in some way, in some real way, joined to us in the Holy Spirit. That's just not true, because objectively they adhere to heresy or schism, and objectively they are in the state of mortal sin. If they are not in the state of mortal sin, it is, as we say, by accident. That means they are ignorant of the fact that they are in a false religion, and mm -hmm. they have other qualifications for being in the state of grace, which are very difficult to attain. So, but just to say these Christians are joined to us, they're not joined to us in any way. They, they are objectively in the state of mortal sin. They are heretics and schismatics. And this sanctifying power is not active in them because objectively they are in the state of, sanct of, of mortal sin. And they cannot shed their blood for Christ because they are heretics and schismatics. And that was defined as a dogma by the Council of Florence. Right, so they could shed their blood all they want, but as heretics and schismatics, they do not sanctify themselves in the shedding of that blood because they are outside the church. This all concerns the church. And what I am giving you here is the traditional teaching of the church. You can, you can verify it by looking up the Council of Florence, that even if you uh, shed your blood for the name of Christ, uh, that is not something that is makes you holy if you are outside of the church. Mm -hmm. right? It does yep. not gain for you eternal salvation. Now, we're not speaking here of people who are, as we say, in invincible ignorance, 
uh, we are uh, speaking here only objectively. And if yep. they are in invincible ignorance, they belong in by desire to the Catholic Church. And and if they go to heaven as a result of belonging by desire to the Catholic Church and fulfilling all the, the other requirements, it is not by their schismatical sects that they're going. It, it is in, in, in virtue of the fact that they have been moved toward these acts which make them uh, members of the Catholic Church by desire, mm-hmm. by the Holy Ghost. That is a whole different thing. And notice that there's none of that in this, in, the, yeah. in any of these statements of people who might be in invincible ignorance of the true faith or anything like that. There is nothing. This is just the wholesale blessing of people in schism and in heresy uh, cut off from the church as if they were in some way members of the, oh, they are members according to them, members of the Church of Christ and in, in a certain way uh, joined to the Catholic Church. All right, so that's the, you know, those are the, the really nasty uh, quotes from the Council with regard to the new ecclesiology uh, uh, and defining it. No, they didn't stop there, my lord. They went on and put it in, into canon law in 1983. So let's have a look at some of that. Yes, so the canon law confirms what I am saying. And that's very important because canon law is, is a, an official document. It's the law of the church. It's not someone's comment. This is official. So canon 204, paragraph 1, says, Christ's faithful are those who since they are incorporated into Christ through baptism, are constituted the people of God. That means Christ's faithful. And now that is a technical term. In Latin, that's Christi Fidelis. In the traditional canon law, Christi Fidelis means the same thing as Catholics. All right, but just wait. So the people of God are the baptized. And they are Christ's faithful. That means the schismatics, the Anglican... The, the you know the uh, Baptists uh, the fundamentalist Baptists in Oklahoma the you know all of these people are constituted as the people of God in Christ faithful now canon law continues this is the 1983 code of canon law for this reason they participate in their own way in the priestly prophetic and kingly office of Christ <laughs> they're heretics. Yeah. Are cut off. How can you be attached to Christ if you are cut off from his church? The traditional theology would say. The, I continue the quote. They are called, each according to his or her particular condition, to exercise the mission which God entrusted to the church to fulfill in the world. They have a mission from Christ to be priests, to be prophets, that means to teach, to to offer sacrifice, and and to and to rule the church, kingly office. All you have to do is be baptized. No submission to the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. Now, paragraph two. This church, established and ordered in this world as a society, subsists in the Catholic small c, church 
governed by the successor of Peter and the bishops in communion with him. Again, we have two different entities, this people of God church and then the Catholic small c church that is under the Pope and the bishops. Heresy. Because those two things, the Church of Christ and the Catholic Church, are one and the same in Catholic doctrine. Mm-hmm. Canon 205. Those baptized are in full communion with the Catholic small c church here on earth who are joined with Christ in his visible body through the bonds of profession of faith, the sacraments, and ecclesiastical governance. All right, so here we have uh, full communion, all right, as opposed to partial communion. Canon 844, paragraph 1. Catholic ministers may lawfully administer the sacraments to Catholic, small c, members of Christ's faithful. Now notice that, that you have Mm. Catholic Christ's faithful as opposed to Christ's faithful. And that distinction is made many times in the new code, the the Novus Ordo Code of Canon Law, Mm -hmm. who equally may lawfully receive them from Catholic small c ministers, except as provided in paragraphs two and four, three and four of this canon and and, uh, in canon 861 paragraph two, right? This means that the, um, uh, the, uh, if you go to the exceptions, you find out that the uh, Catholics can approach non-Catholic ministers and the, uh, the non-Catholics can approach Catholic ministers uh, for uh, some serious reason. Um, the, um, so th- there is this distinction all through this canon law between the Catholic uh, uh, members of the church and the, or the Catholic of Christ's faithful, Christ's Catholic faithful versus Christ's faithful. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolute proof that Christi Fidelis, which means Christ's faithful, refers to all who claim the name Christian, regardless of sect, can be seen in Canon 923. The Christian faithful, that means just Christi Fidelis, the, the no Catholic uh, in there, can participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice and receive Holy Communion in any Catholic rite, provided the prescription of Canon 844 be observed. So the, the, the general, you know, that means the baptized, the, the, the Christian faithful. Now, when you check out 844, what do you have? It is the Eucharistic hospitality canon. Oh, it is the canon which makes a distinction between Catholic Christ faithful and ordinary Christ faithful and defines the restrictions, a few which exist, on intercommunion. So the uh, conclusion is that the Christ faithful of 923, Canon 923, refers to all Christians who may participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice and Holy Communion as long as they observe the distinctions and restrictions of Canon 844. And this is staggering because it shows 
that the new canon law is describing a whole new church with a whole new constitution. Uh, and it also permits the, the intercommunion, which is a sacrilege uh, to either that, uh, to, to give Catholic Holy Communion to non-Catholics is a sacrilege. And for it is a, against the first commandment for Catholics to receive Holy Communion from non-Catholics or any kind of sacrament or, or participate in their worship in any way actively. Um, so it, it, it is uh, you know, it's a very, very important point in canon law. Uh, so, uh, are you, are you but already the... Well, I was just going to say, my Lord, Eucharistic hospitality sounds awful. It makes it sound like you're running some kind of party organizing company. Well, I think that's about it. You know, belief in the real presence is gone in the Novus Ordo. You know, belief in transubstantiation, which is a dogma of faith, is finished. So it is sort of that. You see, you're invited to a meal, a Eucharistic meal, and you can't invite somebody to a meal and then not have them eat. That's true. <laughs> so uh, it, it is a hospitality. It is, and and the the lines between the churches are very blurry because of partial and full communion from everything that we have said here. Uh, so it all makes sense for them. Already, the council approved of this uh, what we call communication and sacred things. Um, it's um, the decree uh, on the Eastern rites. And uh, it says, in view of the uh, uh, principles recalled above, Eastern Christians who are separated in good faith from the Catholic Church, if they ask of their own accord and have the right dispositions, may be granted the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick, Furthermore, Catholics may ask for these same sacraments from those non-Catholic ministers whose churches possess valid sacraments as often as necessity or a genuine spiritual benefit recommends such a course of action and when access to a Catholic priest is physically or morally impossible. So that means Greek schismatics or many, you know, all Eastern schismatics can approach the Catholic Church for sacraments penance, Eucharist, and anointing, uh, the extra unction, uh, which is uh, uh, contrary to Catholic teaching. If you are outside of the Church, even in good faith, if you're outside of the Church, you cannot approach Catholic sacraments. You cannot say, uh, I'm in good faith about being an Anglican, I'll go into this Church and receive Holy Communion. You can't do that. You have to be reconciled publicly to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church is a public and, and visible organization. So this is a, a license for sacrilege. And then the Catholics can go to the, to the Greek Orthodox. That's against the first commandment. That, that's, that, that is a mortal sin against the first commandment, because you are showing that the, uh, an attachment to schism uh, in by doing so, by receiving sacraments from schismatics or heretics, as the case may be, you to their schism. And so this is all mortal sin in the traditional teaching of the Church, and here it is uh, granted by Vatican II. So really, the 1983 code is 
it's reflecting Vatican II. It's, it's, all, it's all in Vatican II. Problem with the present hand-ringers, as I call them, the, that is the Novus Ordo conservatives who <laughs> uh, wish that Bergoglio would just go away, uh, they entertain the thought that, well, if he just went away, everything would be all right. If we can get Ratzinger back, everything would be all right. And that's not true. It's Vatican II. The whole problem is in Vatican II. All of the problems that we have today in the Church are from Vatican II. So they, are, they continue to be duped, and they will continue to be duped for as long as they see that man as a, as a true Roman pontiff. Uh, there was just today an article that uh, Ratzinger's secretary by the name of, of Gastvein uh, he says it's it's like a double papacy now, and and Bergoglio is the active element in the papacy, and Ratzinger is the passive element in the papacy. So you you know, it's like the Romans with their two consuls. Mm. That it takes two popes to run this church. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. They're, 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 it's just perfectly absurd. But you can see that they're they're grasping at, at something uh, to uh, in order to. Uh, see continuity. Uh, continuity is everything for the Catholic Church, and they understand that, and, and they're, they're becoming desperate to see continuity in this whole thing. But even if Ratzinger wanted to turn the clock back a bit and have a nice benediction, and, uh, you know, I'm no doubt they could all get together and sing the Ecipani Sangelorum, at the end of which, it, at the end of the first verse, it says, non me tendus carnibus. And then at the same time, Ratzinger has very clearly given communion to non-Catholics, openly and knowingly. So it's not going yes. to solve anything. No, he is just as radical as Bergoglio, but not as bold. And he had a, a certain way of hiding his radicalness, but uh, he denies the, for example, the resurrection of, of the dead. He denies it. It's clear. Uh, it's it's explicit. And uh, he 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 also permitted uh, uh, prostitutes to use birth control devices, which is contrary to the natural law. Uh, you know, he is just as radical. But because he has those nice red shoes and everything else, they wouldn't believe it. Uh, but but Bergoglio is bolder, and, and it, I am sorry to say, but it, cer- it shows a certain stupidity among the Novus Ordo conservatives that, that they cannot see these things that are plain to everybody, and that they, they kid themselves into this, this dream world that they live in uh, of, of you know, Ratzinger, if only Ratzinger were Pope again, or hoping for the death of Bergoglio that things are going to get better. They're not going to get better. How do you go back on what Bergoglio said about uh, divorce and remarriage and admitting the divorce to communion and, and admitting uh, people who live together to Holy Communion? You can't go back on that. Mm-hmm. Once, those, you know, once the, the horse is out of the barn, it's too late to close the doors. Yeah, and and you know, it's, it's, a, it's just one more step toward total apostasy in the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, moving. Uh, are you ready to move? Well, on, I just Lord? wanted to read De La, Father De La Tai, who wrote a, a large work on the Eucharist. Yeah. Uh, what he says about this communication and sacred things. This is the quote 
Because, however, all Eucharistic communion is a profession of ecclesiastical communion with him who is confecting, distributing, or consuming the Eucharist, it is therefore ordinary it is therefore ordinarily illicit and harmful, inasmuch as it is schismatic and heretical communion of the body of Christ, although it be validly consecrated, received from a heretical or schismatic priest, in the same way he excommunicates himself from the church who receives Holy Communion from a priest who is excommunicated by name. Right, so uh, he's very clear on that. And, and all the authors, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Catholic theology and teaching. Um, mm-hmm. uh, St. John Damascene said, With all our strength, therefore, let us beware of receiving communion from the heretics, or of giving it to them, lest we become participants in their evil opinion and in their damnation. For if there is a complete union between, between Christ and ourselves, we are also united to all those who are of one mind with us. For this mm-hmm. union takes place by means of the mind's intention. That's the end of the quote. So, um, the, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very clear. Uh, you know, we could, I, I suggest that the people listening uh, get the book and read all of these wonderful quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, would uh, if if you would like to finish off uh, with Saint Ignatius of Antioch, and then we'll go to the uh, we'll go to the halfway yes. point of the show. He says, "Take heed then to have but one Eucharist." Now, this is Saint Ignatius who died in the early part of the second century, and uh, who uh, is reputed to have been the boy that our Lord, about whom our Lord said, "Receive the the children unto you." You know. Uh, but in any case, he was a very early martyr and knew the apostles. Uh, certainly he must have known St. John. He mm-hmm. says, take heed then to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop, along with the presbytery and deacons, my fellow servants, that so... Whatsoever you do, you may do it according to the will of God. So uh, that's very clear from the earliest times of the Church, uh, that we cannot have multiple Eucharists. Mm-hmm. Okay. We would like to remind you that you are listening to the Anti-Modernist Reader, Chapter 6, Communion, Ratzinger's New Ecclesiology, this is Part 2, on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I am joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing the nature of communion in the Vatican II sect. We would like to remind you that this anti-modernist reader show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. So in the second half of the show, we want to look at particularly um, Wotiwa's apostatical ecclesiology, uh, uh, Wotiwa, also known as John Paul II, or Saint John Paul II in some circles. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to have a, we're going to have a, a look at what this uh, Pope Saint had to say about, uh, about communion. Um, <laughs> so, my Lord, maybe you'd like to get us started and, and try to hold the vomit down. 
Well, he has this incarnational theology uh, whereby Christ uh, united himself to every man by means of the incarnation, uh, which is false. Uh, The only way that he's united to every man by means of the incarnation is that he has in common with all of humanity the human nature. But he, there is no other union that he has with anybody or the whole human race uh, any more than, than you are united to the whole human race. Uh, <laughs> by, uh, there's no supernatural union that he has. It's purely a, a natural, it's not even a union, it's a commonness. Like people who are on the same boat or the same airplane, you have something in common with them. Mm-hmm. And so he has human nature in common with the whole human race, but he did not unite himself to the whole human race by the incarnation. The, he united himself by his redemption in, in Catholic theology to those who receive baptism, who are in the state of sanctifying grace, who are members of the church. He is united to the members of the church. Uh, that's the union that takes place. That is communion. He is the head, and the members are united to him and to each other in as much as uh, they are united to him. And so um, that, that's, that's the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there is a great deal of humanity that is not united to him, and they must become united to him by means of joining the Catholic Church. That's why the Catholic Church preaches the gospel, so that those who are not united to Christ become united to Christ. And that's why our Lord gave them that, that uh, command uh, before he ascended into heaven and added, it's in St. Mark, you usually don't see it because it's in St. Mark, uh, those who do not believe their preaching shall be condemned. Now that, that shows a clear line between those who are united to him in the mystical body of Christ and those who are not. And that line of demarcation is the faith. Those who do not accept the faith shall be condemned. Very clear. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but now we have this incarnational theology that, that everybody is somehow connected to Christ because he became man. It's just not true. Um, <clears throat> um, so he, in, in that way, signs up the entire human race for the mystical body. Uh, and that means... We are in communion, uh, supposedly, not only with the Anglicans and the Orthodox, but with everybody, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Spiritists, the great thumb worshippers. Remember at, the, at, at Assisi in 1986, I think it was, uh, there was an American Indian there who was worshipping the great thumb. Right, now, your thumb is very important. And the Indians in this country, some of them, made a god out of the thumb. So they worshipped the great thumb. Uh, Just Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you were too young to remember that. (laughs) But there was a great thumb worshiper. Uh, So uh, there's a a communion that exists among all of these people. Uh, uh, And uh, that's Wojtyla's ecclesiology. So it identifies organized religions of pagans and idolaters with the mystical body of Christ. He says there are various spheres of belonging to the Church of Christ. 
And it's just like what you would see as like a target for, uh, for archery. Is that there's the, the bullseye in the middle, that's the Catholic Church, but then there are all of these spheres surrounding the bullseye, and uh, that's, uh, those are the, you know, the various, you know, you name it, uh, the, the great wor- thumb worshippers and everything. Uh, and, but, you know, all of this is completely in accord with modernism teaches that, Christ, that God reveals himself to every man and that he is active in every man revealing himself, and that he reveals himself in different ways to each man. That means every religion in that system has a certain value. St. Pius X said this he, when he just was describing modernism, that everything has a certain value because it all proceeds from the interior religious experience. And so really Wojtyla was just being a good modernist in saying this. Uh, in including them in in a certain way in the in the mystical body of Christ in the Church of Christ, so that that's apostatical. It 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 uh, it, it goes beyond heresy. There's uh, it, there's you don't even have to believe in Christ in order to be um, be attached to Him. Uh, that that's the the. Um, Ecclesiology of uh, you know, Saint, quote unquote, Boitiwa. So mm-hmm. uh, now so this, this new. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so in that sense, not only as you've just said, the Anglicans, the Orthodox, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Voodoo's, Spiritists, Animists, all those—they're they're all in the Catholic Church in, in the wider sense, according to Boitiwa. But. In the Church of Christ, they, he would say they're, they belong in, in, by, you know, they're in the outer spheres, we might say, of the Church of Christ. But crucially, Judaism is too. And, and to use the bullseye analogy, well, in reality, Judaism is down the other end of the archery range, firing arrows back at you. It's diametrically opposed to Catholicism. Yes, it is. It is the, the only difference that exists between us and Jews is our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that because if they accepted our Lord Jesus Christ, they would accept his church and the dogmas of the Catholic Church and everything that the Church teaches. So the only thing holding them back from unity with the Catholic Church is the divinity and messianic dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So what what defines them against Christianity is a single thing, the rejection of Christ. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between the Jew and the Christian, or and by Christian I mean Catholic? Our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's because they would accept everything else. Mm-hmm. They, they would, if they accept him as Son of God and as Messiah, they accept everything he's going to say. It would just all flow. So it's like a great dam that, that is holding back the, the waters of belief, and that is their refusal to see him as the Son of God and true Messiah. They would make staggeringly good Catholics, wouldn't they? They'd oh, they make wonderful shame. Catholics when they convert. Hmm. They do, they, they, yeah. because they are not a people of half measures. Anything they do, they do thoroughly. That's their, their general character. Mm-hmm. And so if they do become Catholics, they are thorough Catholics. 
and they are rather quick to to accuse their own people of of being stubborn on the point. If you read some of the works of converted Jews, that they come back and say to their own people, "You have to give it up." <laughs> and that's no, true. They are not indulgent toward their own people once they convert. No, no, they wouldn't be. Because they're a, a people that understand reality. They're, they are not. They don't live in dream worlds. And if you're going to become a Catholic, it's because it's true. And if it's true, then the Jews are wrong. That's what they would turn around and say to their own people. Mm. <laughs> you know. But in in the world of gray and and fluffy and soft, you're not allowed to say those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it doesn't go down too well. Um, Right, so Rory, uh, we've just gone through where T Is there anything else you'd like to just pick up on before we move on to the uh, the condemnation of Pope Pius XII? No, uh, that's that's the essence of Wojtyla's, um error. Well, and so, it, it so, is the, so, the anim, well, you can see it in all of the things he did. I mean, he participated with the voodoo. Uh, he participated with uh, snake worshippers in Africa. You know, in in rites, uh, religious rites, with Buddhists, with uh, he drank some sort of sex potion uh, in Polynesia. You know, because all of those religions are sex religions. I don't know if you know that. In Hawaii and all of those, you know, religions throughout the Pacific are all sex religions. And he participated in in this sex potion, drinking that. Uh, he got blessed by an American Indian with a feather. Uh, he did all sorts of crazy things, and he organized the CC and and put the had the or at least permitted the Buddha to replace the the golden Buddha to replace the crucifix in a church in a CC and be incensed by by those uh, Buddhists. So you understand his 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 ecclesiology and that all of these people in some way have religious value that that. Uh, although they disagree with us, they have value. Their religions have value in the order of salvation. And mm -hmm. he, he said that in, in a document, Catechesi Tridende, he said the children, that was in 1980, he said the children must be taught that uh, non-Catholic religions are means of salvation. Mm -hmm. So he confirmed what Vatican II said. So having gone through all of those, described all of those religions, there's, there's a a key quotation, I'm going to quote you, my lord, at the end of page 109, you say, to recognize these pagan and idolatrous bodies to the level of being living members of the mystical body of Christ is nothing less than the abandonment of, of the name of Christian altogether, which is the very definition of apostasy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And at the end of the paragraph, you make a short but interesting point about Freemasonry. Just before we go on to the condemnation of Pius XII, um, would you like to uh, simply point that out? Yes, but Freemasonry has always claimed to be above all religion uh, and to see truth in all religions, but to be a part of none. Uh, it, it, it gathers from here, there, and the other place, the way you might pick flowers in, in a field or something. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is the uh, Freemasonry itself is the true wisdom of mankind, uh, and uh, the the religions are merely contributories or uh, uh, contributing elements, let's say, to this great wisdom of mankind, which is Freemasonry. 
And so you see a very close relationship between the Wojtyla idea and modernism, really, because that's Wojtyla, and, and Freemasonry. Uh, and Freemasonry has always this, uh, striven to transform the church into a dogmaless humanity religion. And that's precisely what it did in Vatican II. Mm-hmm. So we move on to uh, part D, which is the new ecclesiology being condemned by Pope Pius XII. So thankfully, having wandered through some Vatican II madness, we, refer, we return to a little bit of uh, Catholic sense. And uh, Pope Pius XII lays it out very clearly for us. Um, there was a heresy circulated in the 1950s that was condemned by uh, Pope Pius XII. Um, what, what was this particular heresy, and what did Pope Pius XII have to say about it? Well, it was all part of the new theology. Uh, the, the modernists uh, under Pius X uh, were, uh, they submerged. Uh, they, they went to the bottom of the ship, into the bilge water. Right? Uh, and with Benedict XVI, however, they, uh, if we compare them to rats, let's say. They, <laughs> yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yes, think of one of those uh, sailing ships. Uh, and, uh, yes, and there's the bilge at the bottom, and the rats yeah. went down to the bilge under Pius X. Well, Benedict XV, uh, one of his, uh, that was 1914, one of his first acts was to strip the Sodalitium Pianum of its powers. Uh, which meant that uh, that was the agency that Pius X was using to uh, root out the modernists and to get them and to repress them. And uh, because the, as they, they said, and, and Pius X said, they use secretive measures. We have to use secretive measures too. Mm-hmm. They are hiding themselves behind the, the curtains of Catholicism. We have to expose them by by informants and, and by other secretive measures. And he was absolutely right and criticized back and forth and up and down for it. Uh, to this day, you know, the, the awful, you know, I suffered under Pius X. Benedict XV thought that his measures were too harsh, and he, so he did away with that. So the rats started to poke their noses, you know, up to the lower decks of the boat. Uh, and uh, so he lasted until 1922. Pius XI uh, was uh, an excellent pope from the point of view of doctrine. He, he expounded Catholic doctrine beautifully in many and long encyclicals, which are just wonderful. But there was still a – they got up to the uh, higher deck under Pius XI because he did not use the very strong means of Pius X. Uh, uh, although he was stronger than Benedict XV. But you had the rise of uh, bad elements in the Catholic Church uh, under Pius XI. Then the war came uh, and uh, had the effect of sort of uh, making everything to the left wonderful because Nazism and fascism were seen by human beings as something of the right. But they were not. They were socialists. They were socialists. Uh, the, you know, state economies and all of those things that we deplore 
uh, and which you know conservative people think are, are horrible, uh, they were, and, and they were godless. Uh, they they were immoral. Uh, they all sorts of hard things. And, you know, they did not represent decent people in any type or, or form. I mean, it just, they were horrid people and they were products of the left. Uh, as I always point out, you can see Adolf Hitler in the funeral procession of the communist leader of Munich after World War I. Mm-hmm. He was assassinated and, uh, and just, he was it, Jewish to, to boot. Just, <laughs> He's in the funeral procession. In case anybody's in any doubt about this, uh, I, oh, it's something that really, uh, I guess, gets my gate. But the uh, the when people say fascist or Nazi, people automatically assume that that's right wing. Well, Nazi it actually stood for the National Socialist Workers Party of Germany. So yeah. for listener for listeners reading, they were by no means right wing. They were entirely socialist left wingers. And yes, they were. People really struggled to get that into their heads. They, they, yes, they do. Goebbels was a communist before he became a Nazi. I don't know if you know that. And he always said that whenever I say national socialism, I emphasize the second word. Well, that was Goebbels. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he was a Catholic. He was originally Catholic, but he was the one that wanted to completely de-Christianize Germany. And if, God forbid, they had won the war... Uh, they would have de-Christianized all of Europe. Uh, you know, there would be there would have been nothing left, um, well, bunch- and it would have been impossible even to do what we do today with regard to the preservation of the traditional mass. Well, von Stauffenberg, had he uh, had he succeeded, would have done us all a, a huge favor, I'm sure. And he actually was a Catholic, so he was anyway. a Catholic, and uh, he went to the Cardinal of Berlin to ask him if it was. Permissible to do such a thing, and the Cardinal of Berlin said it was right. right. But that's a whole <laughs> other discussion. But yeah. <laughs> uh, was, he was he was a pious Catholic, Stauffen von Stauffenberg, and uh, uh, yes, the uh, you know we're getting off a little bit on this, but the, the German military <laughs> had been planning his assassination from 1942. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't bear him and knew that he would lose the war. So he, uh, uh, you know, but just the characterization of fascism and Nazism as something from the European right wing or or any anybody's right wing is totally false. <laughs> it's it yeah. is less yeah, as you can get. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Uh, so anyway, but the war, because it had that perception that that the right wing was now bad. Uh, Everything left became very popular after World War II. So there was a big rise in communism. Uh, the Russians won the war. Uh, the liberal democracies won the war. Uh, and so there was a, a big rise in everything liberal. And, and in that rising tide, also the liberal and new theology became very popular. And so uh, you had people like de Lubac, for example, who, uh, whose ecclesiology is condemned by Pius XII uh, in uh, his 1950 encyclical entitled Humani Generis. Um, and um, so, uh, so, but there was a whole bevy of, of new theologians. Uh, that's a whole, you could do a whole show on that too. But, uh, and so that, that's what Pius XII is addressing 
It is said that the great theologian Gary Goulagrange wrote the encyclical Humani Generis, which is not surprising. They would always have others uh, write a a draft, and then they would uh, use it basically uh, for their own. Uh, That that was uh, St. Pius X had had Prashendi done. He had three people work on Prashendi, Mm -hmm. and he took one. Right. Um, So... uh, um, and so, well, first he says in 1943, Pius XII says, therefore we deplore and condemn the pernicious error of those who dream of some kind of false church, a sort of society nourished and formed by charity to which, not without disdain, they oppose another society which they call juridical. See, so, uh, He's saying that there is a that this division of a church of charity, a church of communion, we're saying, and a juridical church is false. He calls it a pernicious error, and he calls it a false church. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that distinction is as if there were two different things, which Vatican II states, uh, and he uh, he says it is useless to introduce this distinction. They do not understand that for this very reason, the Divine Redeemer willed the assembly of men set up by him to be an organized society, perfect in its kind, and equipped with all the juridical and social elements to perpetuate on this earth the saving work of the redemption, and to attain this end, he willed that it should be enriched by the Holy Ghost with supernatural gifts and benefits." So he he says very clearly that the institution, the visible institution of the Catholic Church, is set up by the Redeemer, and it is the it is the organ, you might say, of the the Redeemer's work in the world, and has all of the gifts of the Holy Ghost for the purpose of salvation. Then he continues. Therefore, there cannot be any opposition or repugnance worthy of the name between what is called the invisible mission of the Holy Ghost and the juridical function received from Christ of the pastors and the doctors. For, as in us, the body and the soul, they complete and perfect one another, and they proceed from the one and the same Savior, who not only said, as he imparted the divine spirit, receive the Holy Ghost, but he also clearly gave the order, as the Father has sent me, I also send you, and again, he that heareth you, heareth me. See, those last two quotes support the hierarchy. So he's saying that don't divide up the powers of the Holy Ghost and the sanctification of the Holy Ghost from the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And that's precisely what Vatican II does, that the Holy Ghost, uh, the Church of Christ is those who look with faith toward Jesus and all that. See, the baptized who look with faith toward Jesus. Uh, that that's uh, leaving out the hierarchy and leaving out the the structures of the church. That that is uh, as it stands, it's heretical. Uh, the, to divide the Church of Christ is heretical. Then in Humani well, Janus in 1950, he says, some say that they are not bound by the doctrine explained in our encyclical letter of a few years ago, and he means the one we just cited and based on the sources of Revelation, which teaches that the mystical body of Christ and the Roman Catholic Church are one 
and the same thing, some reduced to a meaningless formula, the necessity of belonging to the true church in order to gain eternal salvation. So that's eminently clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, point out that uh, uh, a Jesuit writing in 1948 uh, excuse me, a, a, a Capuchin writing in 1948 proposes the doctrine that the mystical body of Christ is an invisible spiritual society which is composed of everyone who is in the state of grace, be they Hindus, Catholics, Jews, Muslim, Protestants, etc. And that it has a much greater extension than the Roman Catholic Church. That's false. You cannot be in a state of grace unless you desire at least to be a member of the Roman Catholic Church, at least implicitly. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So so this pernicious error was spreading in what we call the new theology. And by the way, that, that was found, that, that article was found in something, Nouvelle Revue Théologique, the New Theological Review which, of course, was modernist. <clears throat> uh, so, um, and so the, the Vatican II and the uh, Vatican II popes, uh, quote-unquote, uh, just picked up this, this same idea. And, and uh, I remember at a cone every spring, there was the, uh, we, had, we were surrounded by vines, and there was a man who took care of the vines, and he always got out the manure spreader, uh, during in the spring, and he would put a big pile of the most smelly manure that he could get, and it was in that valley. You know, it was as hot as blazes, yeah. and he would spread this stuff with a like a fan, literally, that would take each little piece of manure and and spread it all over the vines, and you could hardly breathe for a couple of days as the, <laughs> the sun beat down on that that fresh manure. And that's exactly what Vatican II and Wojtyla did with this garbage that was cooked up in the 1940s and 1930s, Dom Bédouin, the same thing. Uh, they, the rats uh, gradually got higher up into the ship, and by the time Pius XII was pope in, in the late 1950s, they were crawling all over the rudder and, and, the, and the, uh, the wheel. <laughs> And they, they were up on, in the rafters and, and everywhere. They were crawling everywhere on the main deck. They were in the poop deck. They were, they were you know, just everywhere. The whole deck was covered with rats. And, and finally they, they got control of the ship and took it out <laughs> oh, and sailed it. I mean, that, that's an excellent analogy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> ship controlled by rats but yeah literally it is um, there's a there's an absolutely appalling uh, quotation on the top of page 114 uh, 114 actually um, we haven't got there yet uh, sorry yeah, I, I, uh, we'll, we'll go over that um Sorry, I'll, I'll edit this bit out. I've just lost my I've lost my track. Okay, so we've just covered Morel. Okay, and we're on to page one one two now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, 
Okay, so this uh, I'm just I'll, I'll edit all of this out, don't I? This is exactly the I'm at the top of page one one two second paragraph. This is exactly the era of Vatican II. John Paul II, the new code of canon law, the Roman Catholic Church, and the system is reduced to mere moral structure. Um, uh, yes, well, I, I mentioned here the distinction between all of this ecumenical theology and what the Church traditionally taught. The Church teaches extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Outside of the Church, there is no salvation. And this is uh, how it explains uh, the, the necessity to belong to the Church. Uh, mm -hmm. that he who is outside of the visible confines of the Roman Catholic Church but who is in the state of sanctifying grace, and he ha must, in order for that, he must have supernatural faith, uh, uh, he is sanctified by means of his belonging in reality to the soul of the Roman Catholic Church and by desire to the body of the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so he, he receives the sanctification of the Holy Ghost if he desires to be a member, at least implicitly, of the Roman Catholic Church. He cannot be sanctified unless he is in some way united to the body of the Church. So you can't have this, uh, the, just the, this invisible Church. He has to be united to the body of the Church in some way, at least by desire, and at least by implicit desire. And I quote Cardinal Biot, who says, the second principle in this case, is that no one has or can have this very habitual grace if in no way at all they adhere to the visible body of the church. Because then they would lack the means which are necessary for salvation and which are therefore necessary for justification and grace, which per se salvation follows. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, don't have supernatural faith, if you uh, don't achieve this state of sanctifying grace, if you don't uh, at least implicitly desire to, do, uh, to, to join the Catholic Church, uh, then there's no possible way that you can achieve salvation because you must adhere to it at least in that manner. That's the general teaching of theologians. This is what the Fenites deny, but it is the general teaching of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. That is the baptism of desire, what he just talked about. So the so to sum it up, uh, to sum that up, as we said at the at the start of the show, really, the essential difference between that and the Vatican II notion and John Paul II's notion is that the Concilia Doctrine does not identify exclusively the body of the Roman Catholic Church with the mystical body of Christ, but merely as a as you put it at the top of uh, page one one three a corporate body, a moral person, in which the mystical body, the superchurch, subsists. Yes. Yes, that, that it's a, a way in which the one way in which it subsists, uh, receives an existence. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's totally different from what the Church taught traditionally concerning those who are outside of its visible confines. Uh, mm -hmm. Because in, that, that, in the case of Wojtyla, they are already members of the Church of Christ. They just haven't made their way yet to fullness, which is to become subject to the hierarchy of the Church. Mm -hmm. But they are partial members. 
they are sanctified by the Holy Ghost. They have uh, uh, priestly powers. They have kingly powers, prophetic powers, as we saw earlier. Now, they're, they're in good shape. All they need is to... It's something like a jigsaw puzzle where you're missing a few pieces. And, you know, you've got the most of it. You can see the picture, but there's a few pieces missing, and you just need to pop those in, and everything will be perfect. And you, you made the uh, comparison of tra- trading in a Chevrolet and buying a Cadillac. Um, yes. yes. So, so the, and, you made, and you made the point that they both are and accomplish essentially the same thing. So there really is fundamentally nothing too wrong with a, with a Chevrolet. It's fine. Yes. That's, that's, um, that's uh, the, the Vatican II nation. Whereas in actual fact, uh, the Chevrolet isn't even a car. It's just nothing. It's a bummed out. It's a bum. It's a bummed out wreck. It will get you nowhere. In fact, it'll it'll do you it'll do you harm rather than it's it, it's not even. Neutral. It's wonderful for going to hell. I mean, <laughs> if you want to go to hell, any of those false religions that will do the job very nicely. Yeah. You know, they are they are means of damnation. That's what they are. Uh, and only by accident uh, are they do they in any way contribute to salvation. That is, remotely and by accident, because they have stolen Catholic things, and you can discover Catholic things in them. But that's the extent of it. I mean, they are not means of salvation. They are not an institution that can bring you to salvation. If you obey the rules of the Catholic Church, you will save your soul. If you obey the rules of the Protestant Church, you go to hell. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah, pretty it's clear as day. Um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, the, so it's the same. same thing as the airplane that has elements. I mean, you can have all the elements in the world, but you're not going to fly to Europe with elements. No, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't get on call, that plane. <laughs> call, call me demanding, but I. I won the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, it might might be difficult to please, but I think a whole plane suits me better. Yes, um, I'd feel much better about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, at the page of at the page of one one three, um, the que- uh, the question really is answered. You answer you answer the question in a single sentence. Um, uh, that you talk about this this idea effectively ruins the Catholic Church's nature as the one true Church of Christ. And yes. You then go on to quote uh, card well at the time Cardinal in in inverted commas Ratzinger. Um, mm-hmm. Could could you please um, just read out that quotation and and critique it briefly for us? Nevertheless, the divisions among Christians prevent the Church from affecting the fullness of Catholicity proper to her in those of her sons who, though joined to her by baptism, are yet separated from full communion with her. Furthermore, the Church finds herself, uh, herself finds it more difficult to express in actual life her full Catholicity in all its aspects. Oh, I want to <clears throat> Yes. So, Again, so, can I just ask a just ask a quick question, my lord? Am yes. I to understand by this that because Luther 
the likes of Luther and Henry VIII split off from the Catholic Church, that somehow the Catholic Church cannot express her Catholicity. That's what they're saying, yes, which is totally false. The, <laughs> Please, the, the Catholicity of the Church is that it extends to all peoples and all times. That doesn't mean that it, it extends to every single person in that framework, just that that it has an extension to all peoples and all times, limited either by time or space. And, you know, you say, well, the church was not in the Pacific Ocean, you know, until maybe 1700 or, or, or a little later, uh, but it had potentially the ability to do that and the intention to do that. That's why the church has always been very missionary. It's gone everywhere. It always wanted to go with all of the colonizing powers uh, in order to uh, to bring the, the gospel. So the because it's intrinsic to the Catholic Church to be missionary and to preach the gospel. Bergoglio, as you recall, said that uh, proselytism, which is pre- preaching the gospel, is solemn nonsense, which is a blasphemy against all of those wonderful missionaries who brought with great uh, suffering, personal suffering and inconvenience, going into the wilds of Africa and, and Canada and all of those places uh, the, the, to bring the Holy Gospel. I mean, it's, well, it's in- just such a slap on the face to them. Well, well, they're interesting, my Lord, in the last few days, and I don't want to steal uh, any of Stephen's thunder for Francis Watch, but in the last few days... He's also said that the conquest, the militant conquest of ISIS of European nations or of Muslims, not necessarily ISIS, but Muslims in general of European nations, is similar to the charge given to the apostles to go out and preach to all nations. So, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've heard that, but that's certainly something that he said. So on yes, the one I hand, did, because it's in the it's in the in the Acts of the Apostles that the that the apostles burned a lot of people and cut their hands off and cut their heads off and did various other atrocities in order to spread the the holy gospel it's it's you can read it right in the acts of the apostles <laughs> burned them but, up in cages and and so, you know slit their so heads on, off with with a kitchen knife so on the one hand he's saying that proselytism is solemn nonsense but then he's saying but this muslim invasion of europe isn't so bad because it's very much like the charge given to the apostles to go and preach preach to all nations yeah it's it, it's so blasphemous that it, it, you know it, well it's no wonder to me that the volcanoes are starting to act up etna is going and there's a few in south america and even the one out in oregon is starting to show uh signs of blowing up again so <laughs> it's enough to uh. take the earth uh i mean it's so blasphemous to, to say that about the holy apostles to compare that those those evil uh, just agents of the devil to the holy apostles and who had the mission from Christ to preach the gospel, uh, I, I just can't uh, ha- even imagine how he could make any comparison at all. I mean, it's so blasphemous. It cries to heaven for vengeance. It really does. Well, like I said, I don't want to steal Stephen's thunder, so I'm sure, I'm sure uh, you can talk about that on Francis Watts <laughs> the, the next episode. <laughs> yes. um, so, to uh, finish off uh, part three, um, could you please read uh, just 
the last paragraph of part three uh, from the consequences are quite logical. Yes, the, the consequences are quite logical. All such organizations should recognize, uh, and that is the um, uh, the uh, the uh, religious organizations uh, should recognize the existence of the mystical body of Christ, superchurch, all hyphenated, and should yes. strive to break down the administrative, dogmatic, and disciplinary obstacles among them. So that one day the super church, this, this big happy church, and the corporate body can be one and the same. So you have a huge body uh, that is dogmaless, one huge dogmaless body uh, that ha- is under one hierarchy. Ecumenism is the practical consequence of this doctrine, as well as a notion of communion, which is radically different from the Catholic notion. So mm-hmm. that that's the the goal of these people is to make a, a a world church that has no dogmas. Uh that will be uh a preparation for the antichrist. The antichrist will have both a political and religious aspect to him. And and one of the requirements for him is that there be no religious dissent. Uh, dogmatic dissent, and that that religions come together in a dogmaless humanity religion. Uh, and Bergoglio is very much uh, you can you can see uh, elements talk about elements of the <laughs> Antichrist in him. Uh, he, he shows them very strongly, and that, that's the that, that's what is coming down the pike, as we say. And uh, so. Uh, and you know who will be left out of this grand scheme. You will, and I will, and, yeah. and we will become uh, pariahs and, and all sorts of misfits in society and, and uh, you know, eventually face firing squads or other things that have been inflicted upon people of our bent at one point or other. So, uh, you know, people should be ready for that. We just did the uh, in church history the revolutions in Spain in the 1930s and in Mexico in the 1920s, and I pointed out that these things are so fresh. I mean, the, these terrible persecutions, shooting priests and firing squads, and and doing dreadful things in Spain. Spain was even worse than Mexico. Dreadful, dreadful persecution of the church in Spain. I said the Queen of England was alive when these things were happening it's in her mm-hmm. memory that that this is not as you know this is not something happening in the, in the middle ages that this is something in people's very lifetimes and i mentioned the queen i mean there's other people her own age that can remember these things she was uh you know she was born in 1927 26 so she would have remembered spain in the late 1930s quite well i'm sure what was happening mm-hmm. there and yeah. and so I you know I said don't think that that the the relative peace that we live in now is going to last forever. I told the seminarians that. I mean they might have to suffer some very bad persecution for the faith, and and the faithful themselves. You know I think we're in a lull right now, but uh, I don't think it will last forever. Mm. Well, I think that's a good uh, a good place to finish the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a downer, is, but uh, nonetheless, reality, you know, it's it's true. And nonetheless, I would rather be uh, on this side than uh, than on the other, so, uh, regardless of what's coming. So, 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sanguine about the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, as we um, close out this episode, uh, I would like to thank you, my lord, for your time in being with us again today. Is there anything else you'd like to add in summary before we go on next episode to talk about uh, the, uh, a critique of the partial communion and uh, the branch theory? Oh, just uh, that uh, people should understand the apostatical nature of Vatican II. They should understand that Vatican II is the problem, that Vatican II set up a new constitution uh, that uh, of, a, of a new religion, that it wanted to impose upon the institutions of the Catholic Church, and that the solution is to get rid of Vatican II, as I always say, to dump Vatican II, and to uh, adhere to everything that was previous to the Council. If you don't do that, you're going to go down the drain with everybody else. If you don't make that cut from Vatican II, you're going to go down the drain. Mm-hmm. Well, once again, my Lord, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again in the next episode of this series. May God bless you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at antimodernist at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to His Lordship. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.